Good evening and welcome to the Speak Easy podcast. I am your host, Constance Willard. And this evening here at the Speak Easy, we have a featured guest, a medical expert that's going to come and share and give insight and information on breast cancer diagnosis, prevention, treatment, and also heighten the awareness of the continued fight against breast cancer. So our featured guest this evening is Dr. Beth Bachman Dupree. And Dr. Dupree is currently the Chief Medical Officer of Interstill Health Systems, Caliber and Gateway Health Systems. She is a graduate of Hahnemann University in Philadelphia. She's also her undergrad, she got them from the University of Pittsburgh. Her practice yields 35 years of experience in the surgical management of breast cancer. So I would like for you all to welcome Dr. Beth Bachman Dupree to the Speak Easy. Good evening, Dr. Bachman. How are you? I am good, Constance. How are you? I am wonderful. And I thank you so much for coming to share with us this evening. And so I was looking at some stats from the American Cancer Society. And it says for 2022, there have been 288,000 new cases of breast cancer. So do these stats more or less align with what you're seeing in your practice as a surgeon daily? Unfortunately, we continue to see an increase in the number of breast cancers annually. And that, you know, last year it was estimated to be 244,000. Now we're up to 280,000. And there, there continues to be a slight increase every year. And that, that comes from multiple factors, but I'm, I'm not surprised because breast cancer is a cancer that not only has a genetic predisposition, but there's a lot more, um, a lot more factors of lifestyle that come into play. And over the past two years, because of COVID and a lot of women delaying their mammography, we may be seeing a, a slight uptick in the numbers because people didn't necessarily go for screening. Okay, I think we have lost you, Dr. Bachman. I'm still on here, I think. Yeah, I think your internet connection is probably slow because um, you're going in and out. Oh, sorry about that. I'm the, I'm the only one on the internet right now. Okay, so yeah, you're good right now. Okay. Okay, so you can go ahead and continue. Okay, so when, when we look at breast cancer, but there are multiple factors that increase someone's risk. And the reason I believe we're seeing an uptick now is not so much because there is that much more cancer this year. It's that we're seeing an increase um, from the delay over the last two years because of people missing or avoiding their mammograms because of the pandemic. Wow. Wow. And you know, I never thought about that with COVID coming in 2020, in 2019, 2020, and things being shut down. I never thought about the long-term effects on things like 
people not getting their mammograms, earlier diagnosis. And so now we have an increase in incidence. And so I never thought about that. So the pandemic has impacted us in so many ways that we never even thought about or dreamed of. Right. So in your practice, do you treat only women or do you see men and women? Men and women both get diagnosed with breast cancer. It's estimated that for every 100 women that are diagnosed, one man will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And that translates into annual mortality of about 40,000 women will die of breast cancer every year in this country. And about 500 men will die every year of breast cancer. So we see it. I, I've been seeing men in my practice since the day that I began my practice. And um, the, the difference is men don't typically, that we don't send them for screening mammographies. So for men, a lot of times their cancers may be a little bit more progressed because they have to actually feel the cancer um, to be able to find it. Wow. Wow. And, you know, men tend not to talk about things the way we do. They tend Correct. to hide things. And so they kind of suffer in silence a lot because they keep things within. So even though they may detect something is wrong, they may be slow to act, to go and seek treatment. So what guidance and advice do you have for family members to encourage their male loved ones to go and seek diagnosis and prevention methods? Because most male breast cancer is found from a physical exam, I encourage men when they're in the shower, soap up their hands, and then as they're washing their chest wall, to be able to just feel over top of their chest wall. Most men do not have a large amount of breast tissue unless they tend to be um, significantly overweight, but it, examining, their, examining their chest wall and their breast tissue and seeking help if their nipple gets retracted, if there's a discharge from their nipple, if they feel a lump or see a retraction or a pulling in of the skin, or if they feel a lymph node in their armpit. Those are all reasons for a man to seek attention and make sure that what they're feeling or, or seeing in their bodies um, gets evaluated appropriately. And so what age group are you pretty much seeing the highest incidence of breast cancer, men and women? The, the highest incidence is in the, in the age group of 50 to 75. And okay. there are, we, I've seen women in their 20s with breast cancer. And I've seen women in their 90s with breast cancer, but the, the vast majority is in that intermediate group. And we believe that's the group where the incidence is continuing to increase. Okay, so what type of things predispose women, in particular African-American women? Because there's a higher incidence of breast cancer among African-American women. So what predisposes us to be of a higher risk? Well, there's a, there's a higher risk of, of, of more significant cancers or cancers that are, are more, tend to be more aggressive. And in, in the, in, across the board, um, having an early menarche or very early first period, um, having um, not breastfed your children is a risk factor. Uh, in addition, um, obesity is a risk factor. Alcohol consumption is a risk factor. And these are general risk factors across the board. Having a family history of breast cancer, meaning a, a relative, either your mother's or father's side, it doesn't have to be just a maternal relative with breast cancer. And what happens, unfortunately, is there are, there are a significant number of, of African-American women who are identified as having more aggressive cancers. And sometimes those cancers are at later stages as well because of 
um, not as active screening programs. And you know, one of the things that's really been difficult is in research and development of new drugs and new therapies. Uh, unfortunately, minority women are oftentimes not part of those clinical trials. And that's not just from um, that's not just from the breast cancer world. That's in all types of research um, across the board. We see it in mental health research. We see it everywhere that there's a disparity in the number of um, individuals who are recruited to participate in clinical trials. We are not actually able to accrue a lot of uh, minorities. And so in breast cancer research, that's the same thing with minority women. So how do we heighten the awareness to get more involved? As an advocate myself, I would love to know and for someone listening, how would we get the word out to our population to become more involved in these clinical trials and studies? Well, first, first, and, first and foremost, I think the most important thing is starting with the basics for every woman. Um, I, I, I believe that you know, as women, we own our breast tissue, and I've, I've always said this: um, when you go through TSA pre-check at the airport, you know they have signs everywhere that if you see something, say something. Well, it's kind of like with your breasts. If something is not normal, if you feel something, say something. If you see something in your skin, you've got to say something. I was having a conversation with someone today who, when she went for her mammogram, she thought she felt a lump in her breast, but she didn't speak up to the technologist when she got there. So she had just a screening mammogram, not a diagnostic mammogram. So it's very, very important for women to be proactive. There are some organizations that, um, that, speak against breast self-exam, but I think it's very important for women to examine their breasts and to know their breast tissue, particularly in the shower when they're lying down, because 20% of breast cancers are not found on mammograms. And it's not because mammograms aren't good, it's because we can't get 100% of the breast tissue into a mammogram. In addition, about 40 to 50% of the population has very, very dense breast tissue, so mammograms are less sensitive in that population. But all that being said, women should start getting mammograms in their early 40s, um, annually thereafter. Mammograms now should be done what we call 3D tomosynthesis, where it actually takes multiple images so that we're able to see the differences in density. And women should also know where they're going for their mammogram to make sure that their images are being evaluated by a specialist. They want to have a radiologist who's a dedicated breast imager. And that means that either they've done additional training, called a fellowship in, in breast imaging, or for some of the older doctors, it may be that they limited their practice to breast care, where all they do is read mammograms and ultrasounds and MRIs and do biopsies. So a lot of it is really about being empowered to take control of your own health. And in women who have a family history, get checked to see if you happen to carry a gene. Um, for women that have a, a large history, whether it's on their mother's side or father's side, they should seek counseling to identify whether or not someone in their family carries a gene. And a lot of the genes are um, prevalent for breast and ovarian cancer. So that heightened level of awareness needs to be there as well so that those women that are higher risk can then also get additional screening potentially with MRIs. In addition, one more thing, in that 40 to 50% of the population with dense breasts, 
We also have another screening tool. Um, the acronym is ABUS, or Automated Whole Breast Ultrasound. And the automated ultrasound can actually look at the breast tissue contour and topography so that where mammograms might hide something, that 3D ultrasound might be able to pick it up. So we have a lot of great screening tools, um, but they need to be read by the right doctor and women need to be proactive and go for their um, annual mammograms and automated ultrasounds if they need it. High risk women may sometimes be recommended to get MRIs, but first and foremost, we own our breast tissue, examine your breasts. And if something doesn't feel normal, please speak up, talk to a doctor, raise your hand when you're going for your mammogram and tell someone that something's not normal. Great. So for someone who does not know what to look for when they're doing their self-exams, they may have an idea for a lump, but what else, you know, any appearance or anything that does not look right, what should they be aware of when they're performing these exams and what should they look for as far as changes in their breasts that may indicate trouble? Great question. A lot of women think that a cancer is gonna be a lump that pushes out of their breast tissue, but cancers tend to pull tissue in and they actually retract normal tissue. So if someone's in the shower and they raise their arms over their head, they may see some pulling in or indentation of their breast. They may see an indentation of their nipple. They may also see a discharge, some bloody fluid or some clear fluid coming from their nipple. All of those are signs that something's not right. And it doesn't mean that it absolutely is cancer, but it means that it needs to be evaluated because there's certainly a higher risk of there being something in the breast tissue at that point. The other thing is, um, it's great to use the soap in the shower, just like it works like that for men, examining the top part of your breast in the shower, and then lying down in bed with your arm over your head to be able to examine the rest of the tissue. And, you know, everyone says, you know, there, there are people that, that don't like to do breast exams because they say, well, I feel a lot of things. It is better to get to know your breast tissue. And if you feel something that changes, go to see your doctor than to avoid it altogether because we carry them around every day of the week as women, you know, they, they don't leave our bodies. So who better to know us than ourselves? Exactly. So it's just self-accountability, just being accountable Absolutely. to ourselves, being, knowing our bodies, paying attention to our bodies and don't be afraid to speak up. That's Correct. the main thing. I think a lot of times, you know, when things, we know things aren't right, and we have that inner sense within us that says that things are not right, but we become fearful and we don't talk. So we need to speak up. Don't be fearful. Speak up. When you recognize the first sign that you recognize something is not right with your body, your breasts, speak up. One, speak of, one, up. one thing that's unfortunate is I've seen it too many times in my life. A woman feels something abnormal in their breast and they don't say anything, they go get a mammogram. The mammogram is read as normal, but like I said, not every cancer shows up on a mammogram. So if someone feels something and they're going for their mammogram, they need to write it on the sheet when they do an intake sheet and they'll say, do you feel anything in your breast? And they need to tell them where it is because sometimes if something is far out or lateral on the chest wall, you know, the, the, the technician needs to know to be able to try to look at that area and they would be alerting the breast imager to be able to have them potentially come feel that area and see if they need an additional ultrasound or additional imaging. So it, again, what you said is so important. They need to speak up. 
So is it important and necessary before a woman goes for her scheduled mammogram to have a conversation with the medical professional and say, hey, I'm going for my mammogram. What should I be paying attention to? What should I be reporting? Well, I think it's important for women to get a basic understanding of how to do a breast exam and what normal and abnormal is. And most women are seeing their gynecologist once a year, so it's a great place to start where you can have a conversation with your gynecologist. I also think it's very important for women to just, you know, as, as we raise our daughters, I think it's very, very important for a mother to have that conversation with their daughter to be yeah. able to explain to them how important it is to be your own advocate and not just for breast health, but for all of our health needs. Um, we need to be, we need to be our most important advocate when it comes to our own health. I'm just sitting here thinking, I don't have a daughter, but I do have a young son and I'm going to start educating him on how to perform self breast exams, you know, because he's a young man and he needs to be aware. So I'm going to start enlightening him and educating him for his safety and his own health protection. So I thank you so much for sharing that. And so how do we know that we are at risk? You know, what things should we be aware of to know that we are in a risk category? Well, the risk categories, the, high, the highest risk categories are individuals that carry a genetic predisposition. We know that there are many genes. A lot of people know about the BRCA genes because of Angelina Jolie and her very high profile surgery. The BRCA genes have a high risk of breast and ovarian cancer and some pancreatic cancers. So women in that group, are between a 70 and 80% risk in their lifetime of developing breast cancer. And that's a very specific risk group where in those patients, we put them at a higher level of surveillance, oftentimes talk to them about risk-reducing surgery, and really want to make sure that they stay on a very high vigilant program. Um, there are other genes too that are less um, deleterious or, or less virulent, um, PALB2, the uh, CHECK2 gene and, and, you know, P10, several other genes. But if someone has a significant family history of breast cancer, they should see a genetic counselor to make sure that they get the appropriate testing. Um, for the general risk population, um, we know that one in eight women will, will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. And typically it's, it's at the farther, you know, at the later end of their life over the age of 60s. But women that have not had children are at higher risk. Women who are obese, um, have a higher risk. Women who do not exercise um, are at higher risk. Um, obviously, smoking is a high risk for every kind of everything. Um, women who drink excessive alcohol are at higher risk. And so those that we have a lot of modifiable risk factors that, that we have the opportunity to change in our lives. And those are a lot of the things that I focus on with my patients when they're first diagnosed is they've had one diagnosis of cancer. They don't want to get it again. And so we, we talk about lifestyle modification. We talk about, you know, decreasing their body fat, increasing their exercise um, schedule, changing their diet to eat a healthier, you know, more whole food plant-based diet, limiting alcohol, getting rid of tobacco, um, looking at sleep habits. We know that women with significant disturbances in their sleep have a higher risk of breast cancer, which is why we saw a higher risk in, in, some, in the nursing profession and in women um, who are flight attendants, flight attendants also have a higher risk just because of their, you know, high level um, flight plans that put them in a, a higher risk of radiation. 
uh, exposure. We also know that women that have had chest wall radiation, a lot of women that had Hodgkin's disease when they were younger got chest wall radiation, or what we call mantle radiation, and that puts the breasts at higher risk. So unless someone has a very specific um, risk profile where they have those, those levels, they're, they're considered at average risk, which means that they would do, you know, their monthly breast exam, get an annual clinical exam and get their mammogram once a year and, you know, look at the mitigating factors and maybe drink a little less alcohol, um, exercise a little bit more. But um, other than that, you know, that the high risk women we end up seeing in our what we call risk reduction clinics, where we see them every six months for a clinical breast exam and make sure they're getting the appropriate imaging. Wow, this is just so much great information. And so I was on LinkedIn yesterday and I saw, well, Cornell University, they have two um, scientists there, professors there who are doing, they got received a grant to do a study in African-American women to identify certain genes that place them at risk for breast cancer. It was just on LinkedIn yesterday. Um, and it was just a little short snippet. It didn't go into the full study but it was quite interesting. And I want to do some research and read up on it to find out about it and to kind of keep up with it. Are you aware of that study? I am not aware of that study, but my, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Rasha Simmons is one of the breast surgeons at Wild Cornell. So I can certainly give her oh. a ping and find out what's going on. Great, great, great. And so your, your youngest patient. My youngest your age, patient. Your age range. Um, 24. Okay. And then your oldest? I, I, had, I had an 18 year old. I didn't operate on her, but I followed her. She had, um, what we, what was called a juvenile secretory carcinoma, but mm. I only followed her. She, someone else operated on her before me, but my youngest, um, was 24. Wow. And she's doing, she's doing beautifully. Okay. Great. Great. And you know, it's always wonderful to hear about the survival stories. You and know. she was because, because of her young age, um, I did have to counsel her um, at the time to con consider freezing her eggs. Um, she had a boyfriend she was very serious with, so she she did freeze her eggs um, because through chemotherapy and a lot of the other treatments, she's going to delay having children until probably in her early 30s. And by helping her to preserve her eggs, her eggs are 24-year-old eggs. They're not 34-year-old eggs. So we increase the chances of her being able to have a viable pregnancy um, after her cancer. Wow, that's amazing. And so let's talk about hormone replacement therapy and how that is related with breast cancer diagnosis. You know, a woman, a woman goes through menopause, you put them on Premarin or whatever for hormone replacement. But at the same time, they're putting them at a risk to come up with breast cancer. So how does that work together? How do those two work together, the hormone replacement therapy and the breast cancer diagnosis or the risk of coming down with breast cancer? We know that the majority of our breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive, which means that they will respond to estrogen. Back in 2010, I actually broke a story with Brian Williams on the nightly news about the Women's Health Initiative where all these women have been put on Premarin. And the, the, the big buzz at the time was that, you know, for um, what we look, what we looked at with that second study with the second part of the women's health initiative was that 
women that were on the estrogen replacement therapy ended up having later stage disease. Initially, they thought that it was just because um, we were finding more cancers because these women were followed by, by their doctors and they didn't think that it, it actually had an implication long-term. But um, what happens with menopause is menopause is a normal part of our life. It's a normal part of a woman's um, maturation cycle. And for years, menopause was treated like a disease. So when you started getting symptoms, doctors put patients on hormone replacement therapy. And we know, we know that the, it was the combination of uh, Prempro, the estrogen and progesterone, that had the higher risk profile for um, increasing the risk of cancer. We know that estrogen alone um, was not as nearly as, as significantly ad adversely affecting, but if you have a uterus that's intact, you have to have the estrogen and the progesterone in order to cause the sloughing of the lining so that we don't increase the risk of endometrial cancer. So the, the real answer with hormone replacement therapy is it's not, it's not this horrible, evil process. It's just that not every woman should go get placed on hormones at menopause. There are a lot of other ways to mitigate the side effects of menopause without putting someone on hormone replacement therapy. And that's where it's really important for a woman to talk to her doctor about what is her personal risk? What is her family history? You know, what are the risk factors does she have that could potentially put her at a higher risk if she does go on hormone replacement therapy? And you don't have to stay on it for 30 years. I have some women in their 90s coming into the office and they're on their hormone replacement therapy and they do not want to get rid of it. And so that makes it really difficult because they then took a disease, a, a, a non-disease, and almost turned it into a disease by giving someone a medication for it. So estrogen replacement, there's risks and benefits of both sides because women are at different risks and their symptoms with their menopause are all different. They really need to have a very, very real conversation with their doctors to learn what their personal risk is. I have, I have some of my uh, breast cancer patients who after cancer take hormone replacement therapy. But it's done in a way where we have an absolute algorithm where everybody knows what the other one's doing. I'm working with a gynecologist because sometimes women have such significant symptoms of menopause that we need to be able to help them mitigate those side effects. So what is the outlook as far as future treatment or current treatment in fighting the cure? Well, First of all, prevention is key. All the things I talked about with preventing breast cancer is really important. Um, mammograms don't prevent breast cancer, but they can prevent death from breast cancer. So early detection is very, very important because being able to find cancers earlier helps them be more, more easily treated. And we've moved into the time of what, we, what I would call personalized medicine, where when I trained many, many years ago, pretty much everybody was given the same treatment path. Um, we just had just started doing breast conserving surgery. Mastectomies were the norm 35 years ago. Now, when someone's diagnosed, we can actually look at that tumor and we look at what we call the genomics, which is kind of the genetic footprint of the tumor, not the woman's genes, but the genetic footprint of the tumor. And we can identify, um, there, there are genomic tests like mammoprint, which can identify if a tumor is high risk or low risk for coming back. Um, if someone's got non-invasive cancer, we can do a test called a Prelude DX or a Decision RT to decide whether or not radiation therapy is going to help or whether it's not needed. So we have some very high-tech specialized testing of tumors 
to be able to personalize each individual woman's care. Just because a tumor is in someone's lymph nodes doesn't mean she's going to necessarily get chemotherapy. We now base our treatment on the biology of the tumor or the genomics of the tumor. And that is creating much higher level specialized care so that women that need it can get escalated treatment and women that don't need it can de-escalate their treatment so that we're actually treating the individual woman based on exactly what her tumor tells us and exactly what her family history and risk profile is. Wow. Wow. So a lot of things going on as far as cancer research. Um, I know the Susan G. Komen Foundation, they raise a lot of funding just for research. Also the American Cancer Society. So the future does look a little bit brighter, but again, we have to be accountable. Absolutely. We have to be accountable for our bodies. We have to know our bodies and use our voice. Do not silence ourselves. And that goes for men and women. Speak Absolutely. Up, speak up. Well, Dr. Dupree, I thank you so much for sharing with us this evening and giving us so much insight and information on breast cancer, breast cancer, cancer prevention and treatment. And I do have one more question. Go ahead. Um, we talked about the research. What is available as far as reconstruction for someone who has had the mastectomy? Because a lot of people want to know about that. What is What are their options as far as reconstruction? Well, there are many options with reconstruction. We now do a technique very often called nipple sparing mastectomy, where the skin envelope and the nipple stay intact. So a woman can either have an implant placed underneath the skin, underneath the muscle, or we can take the abdominal, the extra abdominal fat between the belly button and the bikini line and bring that tissue up to, to create a new breast. So there's lots of options. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Because a lot of people are curious about that. You know, what are my options? You know, how do I know I'm a candidate for reconstruction? You know, that crosses their minds a lot. You know, I guess the main thing would be just getting over the diagnosis and then going through all the treatment regimens. You know, that would be the most important. But then, too, you need some hope, you know, some type of reassurance of what is available to you. Thank you again, Dr. Dupree, for so coming to speaking and sharing with us. Thank you to our listening audience. And until next week, may God continue to bless you richly today, tomorrow, and always. Have a good evening.